0: To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor.
1: Hello, listening friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? On August 23rd, 2022, a teenage pilot became the youngest person to fly solo across the world in a small aircraft. Mac Rutherford, 17, landed at Sofia, Bulgaria after a five-month journey across 52 countries covering 33,600 miles. Along the way, Mac, who was born to British parents but's grown up in Belgium, encountered sandstorms in Sudan, monsoon rains in India, and spent a night on an uninhabited Pacific island. Mack, who began his epic odyssey on March 23rd, described some of the beautiful scenes that he was able to encounter from wildlife in national parks of Kenya to the New York City skyline. He landed Wednesday, August 23rd, 2022, after completing the feat. Mack encouraged others to follow their dreams no matter how old you are. He said, work and move forward to achieve your goals. He added, by the way, his sister Zara is the youngest woman to fly solo around the world. Well, that's something I tell you. That's a pretty epic journey. Yeah, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've had my pilot's license for 30 uh, something years. And I think you flew with me once or twice. I did, yeah. And uh, you do your first cross country and you're scared half to death when you're flying by yourself between three points on the map, I can't imagine uh, all that would be involved in going in and out of all of those international airports mm-hmm. where the air traffic is all a little different. And for a 17 year old, he must've had a lot of hours and experience.
2: That's right. When you look at the map uh, that you put that up on the screen, he didn't fly in a straight line around the globe. He kind of traced the continent of Africa. That's a lot of flying, a lot of miles. Some of that was by choice,
1: and some of it was because he couldn't get the permits to land in some countries. Oh. So they had the skirt around it. Now, other times he wanted to see mm-hmm. certain parts of the world. But uh, you know, I love flying. If I'm on a motorcycle, I'm trying to find something to jump or if I'm on my skis, I'm jumping. And I was driving a truck today in the hills and I revved it when I went over a bump. So I, could <laughs> I, the sensation of flying, I just love it. And uh, you know, a lot of people ask, will you be able to fly in heaven? And I think so. You know, you've got that verse there in Isaiah 40, verse 31. And it says, but those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. And I guess the other scripture would be when Jesus ascended to heaven. That's right. He just ascended.
2: And of course we know, Pastor Doug, that angels fly. We have a number of accounts uh, in scripture, I think of the one where Daniel was praying and an angel came from heaven to earth.
1: Being caused to fly Fly swiftly, swiftly. yeah.
2: So angels fly. you know, you know the hymn that we often sing in church, we will soar to worlds Rock unknown. Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages. Yeah. So We know we're going to be going to heaven, but uh, what about the other worlds God has
1: created? Yeah, it says we're caught up. That's right. And it's probably not in a rocket. That's right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you know, we do have a book that talks about heaven, this wonderful mm-hmm. home of the redeemed. The Bible tells us, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God is preparing for those that love him. Mm -hmm. But there are some things revealed in scripture about heaven, about the home of the redeemed. And our free gift is all about that. It's called Heaven, Is It For Real? And that is our free offer. If you'd like to receive it, all you have to do is call the number 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the book by name, Heaven, Is It For Real? Or ask for offer number 189. We'll be happy to send it to anyone here in North America. Now, we do have those who are listening outside of North America. And if you'd like to read the book, we encourage you to go to the Amazing Facts website, just amazingfacts.org or .com. And you'll be able to read it there on our free library. Again, it's called Heaven, Is It For Real? And Pastor Doug, we want to greet those who are now joining us. We have folks watching live on AFTV, also watching on um, YouTube, and then on Facebook, on your Facebook page, Doug Batchelor Facebook page, also on the Amazing Facts Facebook page. And this is rebroadcast on some other networks. So we want to greet all of those who are watching, wherever you might be, however you're getting this program. And of course, the many who are actually listening on radio. This program started as a radio program. And we want to greet those listening on land based stations and also those listening um, through the uh, satellite radio system. Mm-hmm. So, what well, with that, let's start with a word of prayer and we will get to Bible questions. Dear Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to be able to open your word and study. And Lord, it's always exciting to be able to come to the scriptures. We know that you have promised to be with us, and uh, we desire that we might be led into a clearer understanding of Bible truth. Mm-hmm. So be with those who are listening, wherever they might be, and guide us here as we search the scripture in the studio. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, friends, this is a live program. So if you have a Bible-related question, the number here to the studio is 800 800- 800 463 7297. Again, that's 800 463 7297 or 800 God Says. And that'll bring you here into the studio and we'll be able to take your question on the air. So I think we're ready for our first caller. We've got Anthony listening in New York. Anthony, welcome to the program.
0: Hello. Good evening, Pastor. Evening. My question uh, is with regards to Acts chapter 2 verses 16 through 18 and i'll try to I'll make this brief um basically i know that you know you see a lot of uh on tv or different you know churches where they start to call people prophet and you know as, i guess as a uh honor type thing mm-hmm. and things of that nature i've heard some people claim to have you know the gift of prophecy or claim to be prophets Basically, what based on Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, I want to know what
2: constitutes a prophet. Um, especially if knowing that in the last days people will have the gift of prophecy, does that automatically make them a prophet? Or, you know, I guess I just want some clarity.
1: Yeah, good question. And for our friends that are driving or something, if they don't have a Bible handy, let me read that for you real quick. This is uh, during the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and he starts to preach in Acts chapter 2. And I'll start with verse sixteen, but this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. The people are wondering about, you know, this manifestation of the Spirit. And it'll come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I'll pour out of my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And I'll show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. And by the way, Peter there is quoting from Joel chapter two. And uh, this is not only something that happened here in Acts when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, it may repeat itself in the last days. Now Jesus has warned us to be careful about false prophets. But the fact that he says, watch out for false prophets indicates there will probably somewhere be true prophets or Jesus would have said, don't listen to any prophets in the last days. So how do you know if a person is a true prophet? First of all, not every time you find the word prophesy does it use the term in the context of like an Old Testament prophet that was making a prediction. Uh, to prophesy like in Acts, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 14, it's talking about preaching. It means to proclaim, prophesy, means to proclaim in behalf of another. And so, um, A lot of times when it talks about the gift of prophecy in First Corinthians, it's talking about being able to preach and teach. But it is also true there will be prophets in the last days. You know, even uh, last prophecy in the Old Testament, behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's a prophet prophet. So how do you know a true from a false prophet? First, we have a lesson that talks about astrologers and psychics. So look, we'll send you a free copy of that because it's got a lot of verses in it but there's some criteria. Deuteronomy tells us that if a prophet makes a prediction that doesn't come true, probably a false prophet. Um, if, if, if they're asking for a fee to give you a prophecy, it's probably a false prophet <laughs> if they're giving you a bill. And um, if their lives are not in harmony with the word, so if a person is living a, you know, a scandalous life and yet they said, I'm a prophet, their lives are gonna be following the model in the Bible their teachings will not contradict the Bible if they're a true prophet. So in that lesson we're offering, it gives the criteria of how do you identify a true from a false prophet.
2: The study that we have, it's called, Does God Inspire Astrologers and Psychics? Mm-hmm. And we'll be happy to send that to anyone who calls and asks. The number again is 800-835-6747. That is our free resource line. Ask for the study guide, does God inspire psychics? And Prophets or astrologers, and it actually gives the biblical principles to determine a true prophet from a false prophet. It's all there in the study guide. Well, thank you for your call, Anthony. Uh, next we have um, Patrick listening from Canada. Patrick, you on the air? Good evening, pastors Evening. I have a question about the Mosaic law, so it's taken mm-hmm. from Luke chapter nineteen verse twenty eight and um there's just also another verse. I couldn't find it, but it's about wearing mixed materials, um, cutting of beard, uh, tattoos, and and something else. I forgot. Uh, sorry, cutting of beards and tattoos. Okay. i just like to find out if those apply to us today, even though we're Gentiles welcomed into the family garden um, by accepting him.
1: Yeah, well, it says there in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo marks on you, I am the Lord." There are clearly some things that you might find in the book of Leviticus that are connected with ceremonial laws, and those things would be obsolete, nailed to the cross, we don't sacrifice lambs anymore, circumcision is not required. But there are also some very practical laws that are sort of self-evident. You know, God says, don't follow the practices of the pagans. And if the pagans were mourning the loss of somebody, they'd do everything from cut off a finger to cut their flesh like the prophets of Baal when they wanted to appease their God. They pierced themselves till the blood gushed out and they they tattoo themselves. And you know, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't want us putting marks. I know what I'm saying, that's probably extremely unpopular because I bet you 10% of everyone listening has a tattoo these days. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Bible I think means what it says, I am the Lord, don't put any tattoo marks on you. Um, you know, God intended us to uh, live forever and to advertise for him. So you know, our bodies shouldn't really have graffiti on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, the practical truth is that a lot of folks who get tattoos, they, they regret it. Uh, to get a tattoo requires you, you to pierce ink under your skin. It's not necessarily the healthiest thing. Some people end up with some kinds of skin cancer or something from that. And uh, yeah, I just, I I think it's kind of a self-evident truth. This is what the pagans used to do. They would mark slaves with tattoos. I just came back from Auschwitz in Poland where they had the Nazi concentration camps. And I remember meeting friends of my grandparents that were Jewish, had the tattoo marks still on them. So yeah, I don't know why Christians are doing that. It says pretty plainly, don't do it.
2: Okay, very good. Well, thank you. Thank you, Patrick, for your call. Uh, we've got Caleb listening in New York. Caleb, welcome to the program.
0: Hello, thank you, pastors. How are you doing tonight?
1: Doing good. And your question?
0: My question is a little bit more
3: embarrassing. I'm a Christian. i I grew up in a church, but like lately, I let like all the worries of life discourage me from from um studying. I'm praying as much and just all the worries. I'm just afraid, like, if I go back to God, like, I deliberately, like, I'm
2: afraid if I go back to God, God won't accept me anymore. I'm just, is there, like, an encouragement,
0: like, verse I can read and something that encouraged me? Because I'm a little nervous about this and a little afraid.
1: Yeah, let me tell you, just this this Sabbath, I preached uh, on Luke chapter 18. Starts, I believe, with verse nine, and Jesus tells a parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and one was a publican. Publicans were the the outcasts of society. They were called great sinners. Uh, Jesus often talks about the harlots and the publicans. So you've got these two men: one very religious, and one is sort of like the uh, you know the gang member of the culture. And uh, they both go to church, and the Pharisee he prays and. Says the Lord, I thank thee, I'm not like other men, uh, extortioners, adulterers, or unjust, or like this tax collector back there. I pay tithe of all that I've got, I fast twice a week. And the publican, the tax collector, he would not so much as lift up his eyes into heaven, but he smote upon his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said that man went down to his house forgiven. His prayer, seven words in English, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God had mercy on him because he repented. His heart was humble. If you go back to God and you say, Lord, I am sorry, please have mercy on me. The Bible promises that he will. Uh, a contrite heart God will not despise is what Psalm 51 says. So if we humble ourselves and if our hearts are contrite, meaning if we're, um, we're meek, poor in spirit, then God is a merciful God. If we're sincerely repenting, he will sincerely forgive.
2: You know, we got a book and it talks about this, it's, um, well actually several that we could offer, but I'm thinking of the one, Three Steps to Heaven, Mm -hmm. kind of lays out what we have to do to reconnect with Christ as our personal savior. We'll be happy to send this book to you or anyone that calls and asks. The number to call is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the book, it's called Three Steps to Heaven. We'll be happy to send it to anyone here in North America. Mm A good question. Thank you for calling. We've got um, Aiden listening in Tennessee. Aiden, uh, welcome to Bible Answers Live.
0: Hey. Uh, so, my question is regarding repentance. Mm-hmm. I'm a relatively new believer, but I'm wondering is repentance necessary for salvation? Um, and I've heard different definitions of repentance, and I've also heard other teachers say you must repent and trust in Jesus to be saved. Mm hmm. Um, but I'm just wondering, you know, like, what what is the importance of repentance?
1: Good, great, good question. Very important question. It's often neglected today. Well, let's just think about it this way for a second. Uh, Aiden, the first words that Jesus speaks when he begins to preach is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Indeed, the first thing John the Baptist said when he started preaching, he, he was uh, went out in the wilderness and he told people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Peter is preaching in Acts chapter two, and the people are convicted by the words of Peter, and they say, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. And so repentance was like part and parcel step number one. Repentance represents a sorrow for sin and a willingness to turn away from it. And so when we come to Jesus, we should have some sorrow for our sins and what we've done to the Lord, and be willing to repent. Um, What is it, Ezekiel 18? He says, turn ye, turn ye, why will you die? So God is calling us to turn from our wicked ways and live. That's what repentance means.
2: Now the Bible also tells us that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to wait to feel, oh, I feel terribly sorry for the sin. We can go to God and say, Lord, please help me uh, recognize that I am a sinner and give me that genuine repentance. It's more than just, you know, a casual prayer. You want your repentance to be deep and meaningful. You think of an example in the Bible after David sinned with Bathsheba, you have an account of his prayer. And that is a heartfelt, earnest prayer. That is a type of repentance that doesn't just come from ourselves. It is is the moving of the Holy Spirit upon the heart. So we can Mm -hmm. ask for that. We can ask for the Holy Spirit to convict us and come to God uh, and have true repentance.
1: Yeah, and and David was on his face for seven days. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's required of everybody, but that's pretty evident he was sincerely sorry for what he had done.
2: You know, we got a study guide that talks about this. It's called Save from Certain Death, and it's uh, steps to salvation. Mm -hmm. How do we experience that true repentance? We'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number to call again is 800-835-6747. You can ask for the study guide, it's called Save from Certain Death, and we'll get it in the mail and send it to anyone here in North America. we got um, Aaron listening from New York. Uh, Aaron, welcome to the program.
1: Good evening, pastors. evening. My nephew has been living a careless life and ended up in prison back in April, and he's still there waiting trial. And for about a, about a month now, he has been getting dreams almost every day. He's been getting dreams about things like a helicopter, an umbrella, a shower curtain, a pepper pepper spray. And then he's been getting dreams of animals like a pelican, a snake, and a a dragon. Then after that, he's been getting dreams about random numbers, like the number 808. Um, He told me that one of his friends said that he has been dreaming angel numbers, but I don't think that's biblical. Can tell me why he's been getting all these dreams and do they have any significance? All right, well, I, you know, of course, I, I won't venture to say specifically why he is getting certain dreams. I'll tell you what causes dreams. A dream can come from the Lord. There's examples in the Bible where God spoke to Joseph in a dream. Matter of fact, he uh, spoke to both Josephs in the New Testament and the Old Testament in a dream. And um, a dream can come from the devil. Uh, Job describes that uh, h- horrifying experience where you have a nightmare. Um, uh, dreams typically, and this is in Ecclesiastes, it says a dream comes from the multitude of business. So if you've got a lot of thoughts going on during the day, then you may dream about some of that during the night. Um, and you know, dreams is something like your brain defragmenting at night. Now, if a person's under a lot of stress, as your cousin, you said, who is you know, awaiting trial and going through a big change in his life. Yeah, that could uh, mess with your mind and, and uh, you could have a lot of strange dreams. That doesn't mean they're prophetic. So I wouldn't try to read a lot into that. If God gives you a dream that is really a message, I think you'll usually know it. You won't have to kind of wonder if, well, I wonder if that shower curtain and that number in my dream meant something. If God is trying to message you in a dream, he's also gonna give you an interpretation and you'll know it.
2: Okay, very good. Next caller that we have is Anthony, listening in Pennsylvania. Anthony, welcome to the program. Well, good evening, Pastor, how are you?
1: Doing good, and your question tonight?
3: My question is Revelation 21, verse one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, when the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. My question is, what is the sea? And why is it specifically talking about no more sea in heaven?
1: Well, obviously there is water in the new earth because you get to the last verses in the Bible and it says, uh, you know, uh, there's a river that proceeds from the throne of God. And rivers run somewhere, they typically run into a body of water. But there's a difference between a lake, freshwater lake and a sea. And uh, you know, the typical briny sea that we can't drink, uh, that stings your eyes, uh, I think there's gonna be no vast ocean separating loved ones. So there probably will be beautiful lakes and rivers and streams in the new earth, it's gonna be like a park. But there may not be, you know, right now, two thirds of the world is sea. It wasn't like that when God first made it before the flood. I think the reason that you've got uh, all the water that covers the earth now is uh, all the water that used to be below the earth uh, in caverns, it says that there are mist used to come up out of the earth, um, that after the flood, the tectonic plates you know, weighed down and it came up. I don't know what happened geologically, but I don't think you're gonna have that in the new earth. So when he says there's no more sea, Think about no more salty water, vast oceans that will separate loved ones.
2: You know, the Bible says, speaking about the flood, the fountains of the great deep broke open. Yeah. And so there was a lot of water from under the the earth that came up and and covered the land. Yeah. All right, very good. Next question that we have is Robert. Robert listening in Washington. Robert, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you, Pastor Ross. One, I guess, kind of different question was, uh, I was reading a few days ago in Luke 21, and talks about one of the signs being the seas and the waves roaring. I think David talks about the Lord is mightier than, mightier than the waves of the sea or is more powerful than the waves of the sea. So, what makes the seas and the waves roaring so special for the second coming?
1: You know, I think that could be an example of maybe a dual prophecy uh, for one thing. When it talks about the sea and the waves roaring in Revelation, it talks about the beast came up out of a stormy sea, or is that in Daniel It says that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and or maybe both. Oh, and a woman comes up out of the sea. So um, when it talks about the seas in prophetic terms, it can mean turmoil and storms in the world, like those angels holding back the winds of strife. But I also think, because Jesus is talking about earthquakes, he's talking about very real geological natural disasters, that and men's hearts failing for fear though looking at things like the tsunami that took place in 2004 where you've got you know 240,000 people die most of the world's population lives on the coasts and so it may be one of the natural disasters christ says there'll be plagues there'll be earthquakes in diverse places and in luke he says the sea and the waves roaring and i think in luke he says there'll be signs in the heavens also Mm -hmm. so uh, just you got uh, things unraveling in the last days.
2: And also an increase of storms. I mean, storms c- yeah. are created over the Hurricanes. sea. Hurricanes, winds, destruction. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think we've seen an increase of some of these devastating storms and of course tsunamis and earthquakes. These are all signs that Jesus gave pointing to the soon coming of Christ.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. In one part of the world, they call it a hurricane. In another part of the world, they call it a cyclone. In another part of the world, they call it a typhoon but they're all the same thing. That's
2: right. (laughs) Big storms, dangerous storms. Well, I'm just looking at the clock, Pastor Doug. We might not have time to take one more call, but we want to remind you of our free offer tonight. Uh, The program's by no means over. We're just going to take a short break. But if you missed the beginning of the program, our free offer tonight is a book entitled Heaven, Is It For Real? And we'll be happy to send this to anyone here in North America. The number is 800-835-6747. You can ask for offer number 189 or just ask for it by name. Heaven is it for real. Mm -hmm. We'll be happy to send it to anyone here in North
1: America. All right, well, I think we've got a break coming up. And if you have questions, I think we have some lines open, just call 800-463-7297 and call with your Bible question. That's 800-God-Says. We'll be back in just a few moments. Don't go away.
0: Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly.
3: Would you like to know God's plan for our troubled world and solutions for your life's challenges? Beautifully redesigned and updated, Amazing Facts 27 Bible Study Guides provide straightforward Bible-based answers that are enlightening, encouraging, and easy to understand, giving you real, relevant Bible answers to questions like, How can I have healthier relationships? When will Jesus come? And much more. Order yours today by visiting afbookstore.com or by calling 800-538-7275. Millions of people
1: believe that planet earth is on the verge of some apocalypse that will plunge the world's cities into chaos. In response, thinking people everywhere are wondering if it might be a good time to locate their families outside of the congested metropolitan areas. In my new book, Heading for the Hills, A Beginner's Guide to Country Living, I do my best to provide a biblical balance. I'd like to share with you some of the crucial things you'll need to know before you head up for the hills. I'd also like to identify some of the practical things you look for in buying a piece of country land, how to develop water, power, and a garden, all while still seeking to save the lost. This book has some very valuable information for anybody that's ever
3: considering country living. Order your copy of Heading for the Hills? Call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Doug Batchelor was the teenage son of a millionaire father and show business mother, yet he was living in a cave. He had everything money could buy, everything but happiness. But all of the fun and excitement he enjoyed left his life out of control. His search eventually led him to a cave above Palm Springs that became his home. While Doug scavenged for food and garbage bins, his father owned a yacht, a Learjet, and an airline. But in his cave home, he discovered a dust-covered Bible. As he began to read, he soon learned of his true purpose in life. The Richest Caveman is the extraordinary true story of Doug Batchelor that tells how a rebellious teenager who once lived in a cave became a tremendous soul winner for Jesus Christ. It's a thrilling testimony of the transforming power of God's Word. To order your copy of The Richest Caveman, call 800-538-7275 or
0: visit afbookstore.com. You're listening to Bible Answers Live To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live.
1: Welcome back, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live. And if you've tuned in somewhere along the way, this is a live international interactive Bible study, and you're invited to join us. With your Bible questions, just call 800-GOD-SAYS. That's 800-463-7297. I am Doug Bachelor.
2: My name is John Ross, and we're going to go to the phone lines. Our next caller that we have is Lori, listening from Indianapolis.
0: Lori, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a question about when we die. I was always under the impression that we go straight to heaven. But in reading some of the scriptures, it says that They are asleep in Christ. Uh, Do we wait when we die and go when he comes back? Or do we go straight to him?
1: Good question. I'm really glad you asked. It's a confusing subject for a lot of Christians because you can walk through a Christian cemetery in the back of the church and just look at the tombstones and you can see there's confusion. One tombstone will say something to the effect, our mother uh, resting in the arms of Jesus, waiting for the resurrection trump. And the other tombstone will say, our mother dancing on golden streets or something like that. So some of them put the dead immediately in the presence of the Lord. Others say, RIP, rest in peace. And folks go, well, which is it? The confusion comes in because I think people forget God lives outside of time. And when you're dead, you have no consciousness of time. It's not like a restless sleep. So when a believer dies, their next conscious thought is the resurrection. But we don't get raised one by one. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, then the dead in Christ rise. And so we rise together at the coming of the Lord. So, you know, if you have a loved one and they died believing, you can find comfort knowing their next thought is gonna be the presence of the Lord. But we live in time. Time hasn't happened yet. God lives outside of time. He's, I am. He's uh, 100% present in any part of time. Acts chapter 2, Peter is talking about King David. He says, David, this is a good king who had died a thousand years earlier. David says he is dead, buried, not yet ascended to heaven. That's pretty clear. They're sleeping until the resurrection when the Lord descends from heaven, then the dead in Christ rise.
2: Now, Pastor Doug, I, I think some people are confused by the verse and I, you, you alluded to it. Says Paul says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But Paul is not saying the minute you die, the next thing is you're in heaven as some sort of a spirit or soul. What does he mean by that?
1: Yeah, and Paul is the one also who said that uh, don't sorrow concerning those who are asleep. So Paul refers to death as asleep. He's simply saying that uh, when you die, your next conscious thought is the resurrection because you have no consciousness in death. And then you look in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, I think verse 5, it says, the living know they'll die. The dead know not anything. Hezekiah says, those that go down to the grave do not praise the Lord. So the dead are asleep. Uh, Jesus said our friend Lazarus is asleep. And we have a free offer on we that do. subject. Does that help, Lori? Does that make sense?
0: It does. It It's a whole different concept from what I was raised to believe. <laughs> yeah. Did, right. well, thank you.
1: Thank you as long as it's from the Bible that's what matters.
2: You know we have a study guide it's called Are the Dead Really Dead and we'll be happy to send this to you Laurie or anyone who is listening all you have to do is just call and ask. The number is 800-835-6747 and you can ask for the study guide it's called Are the Dead Really Dead. That's 800-835-6747. One more time ask for the study guide Are the Dead Really Dead. And if you have a computer Just remember, we've got a website. It's called deathtruth.com, and you can go to that website, and there's a number of great resources and sermons and uh, all the scriptures there, deathtruth.com. Next caller that we have is Philip, listening in Arkansas. Philip, welcome to the program.
0: Hey, good evening. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. My question is, uh, in the last part of Ezekiel, I think chapters 40 on through the rest of the book, God gives Ezekiel some detailed instructions for building a temple, and my question is, why when they went back to rebuild after the captivity, did they not rebuild using those plans?
1: Yeah, Ezekiel, he outlines in Ezekiel chapter 40, uh, and actually, I think a couple of chapters near the end of the book, this massive temple, and it goes into great detail, giving them measurements. Um, he also talks about a river that is so wide that you can, you know, you barely cross it, you go a mile out and you're only up to your knees. So that clearly was not in Jerusalem. And so when Ezekiel talks about this temple, uh, and it is something of a conundrum for Bible scholars, but um, part of the answer I would say, look in Revelation 11. And in Revelation 11, John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and an angel stood and said, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those, those who worship there measure the people. It's like a judgment. So clearly in Revelation, he's got this um, measuring rod exactly like what Ezekiel had in chapter 40. He's going around measuring everything. And um, it's probably because Ezekiel 40 is talking about a spiritual temple that's supposed to be vast. Um, Mm -hmm.
2: And of course you find different types of temples in the Bible. Jesus spoke of himself and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And he was talking of himself. The New Testament says the church is the temple Mm -hmm. of the living God individuals are temples. And we know there's a temple in heaven and it's involved in the judgment. So I see, I think a lot of scholars seeing this some um, symbolic application to mm-hmm. uh, more than just the temple that was rebuilt in Jerusalem. Obviously there's, there's more spiritual application, especially when you tie it in with some of the symbolism that we see in Revelation.
1: Yeah, all the other plans that God gave his people in the Bible, if it was something literal, it was always built like an ark mm-hmm. or the golden ark and the temple. So those things were built. I don't think God would have given Ezekiel all these things if it was supposed to be literally built, uh, unless it really just had a spiritual application.
2: All right, great question. We've got Candace listening from Rhode Island. Candace, welcome to the program.
3: Hi. Hi. So I have a question. Mm-hmm. I am a
0: 36-year-old newly found widow, mm-hmm. and I was curious to know my age yes i'm young um i'm nowhere near ready to date move on in the future Mm -hmm. is it lawful for me to get married even though i can't have children
1: yeah absolutely the the purpose for marriage is not only that you can procreate i mean that you know god did tell adam and eve be fruitful and multiply but um you know, there, obviously some people can't have children. Their marriages are still marriages, uh, even if they don't have children, either by choice or by biology. And so, um, you know, if companionship and love is a very big part of it, the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone. It doesn't say it's not good for man not to procreate. So companionship, and with the word man, they're talking about uh, like anthropos, or actually that would be the Greek. I forget what the Hebrew would be, but it means mankind or humanity. Uh, so uh, yeah, there's, I, I don't think there'd be anything wrong with a person getting married simply for the companionship. Men and women sort of complete each other. You know, we got different gifts, and uh, um, unlike some of the contemporary theories today about men and women, gender not really existing, I think the Bible's clear. Gender is very real, and men and women are wired differently, and we sort of complement each other. Uh, And I think that partnership is a wonderful thing. Now, some people spend out the rest of their days, men and women, as widows, and they still have fulfilled Christian lives. But there's nothing wrong with getting married and not having children, especially today. You know, it says, woe to those that are with child in the last days, because it could be extra hard.
2: Okay, very good. Well, thank you for your call, Candice. We've got Rick listening in North Carolina. Rick, you're on the air.
3: Yes, guys. How are you doing?
1: Doing well. How can we help?
3: Well, my question is on First um, chapter four, verse fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um, when he said um, that God would bring back with Him those who asleep, mm-hmm. and just to shed some light on that, and a few Bible texts that go over that, just to clarify that chapter, um, that verse.
1: Yeah. So when he says God will bring with him, Paul is talking about a sequence here. He's saying, don't, be a, don't sorrow regarding your loved ones that have died, that would be verse 13. Don't be ignorant, I don't want you to sorrow as others that have no hope. If we believe Jesus died and he rose again, even so God will bring with him. So when Jesus comes, he's got the resurrected with him. Then he tells why that is. For this we say to you, now verse 15, by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means proceed. Proceed means go before those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ rise first. That means before us. Then when we get there, they're with him. See what he's saying? Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. So when it says he will bring them with him, it's because when we're caught up to meet him, they're with him now, they've been raised but it's all happening in the same event.
2: Mm -hmm. And also from the context, uh, if you're thinking of it from God's perspective, God is in heaven, Jesus comes to the earth, the dead in Christ are resurrected, the righteous are changed, and Jesus brings the resurrected ones and the saved with him back to the Father. So from the Father's perspective, uh, those who are resurrected come with Jesus back to heaven. It's not necessarily, don't think of it as Jesus bringing the resurrected ones out of heaven down to the earth, rather Christ is bringing the resurrected ones from the earth up to heaven to where the Father is. Does that, does that make sense, Rick?
0: Yeah, are there other verses that can um, just to clarify that a little bit better?
1: Yeah, you mean the sequence of the resurrection?
0: Yeah, like Chapters yeah, um, the Bible.
1: Yeah, let, let me take you to, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, this to me, I think, is a very strong passage. Let me just see if I can find the right verse for you. Uh, mm -hmm. All right, here you look in verse 35. Someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And you got celestial bodies, spiritual bodies, uh, second man, um, flesh and blood cannot, uh, here we go. I'm in verse 50, let's see, I'll go to 52. I'll go to 51, behold, we tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet will be sound, sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. Is that clear? And we will be changed for this corruptible. These bodies that uh, get old will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. And so... Um, And he makes it pretty clear, Uh, I'm looking for another verse where it tells us that uh, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse uh, 22. For in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. When do they rise? Mm -hmm. At his coming. So that, to me, I think, is one of those slam-dunk verses.
2: Now, all the verses you mentioned, and I think a whole lot more, are found in our study guide called Are the Dead Really Dead? Not only it talks about what happens when a person dies, but it also talks about the resurrection of the dead. And we'll be happy again to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number is 800-835-6747. And we'll get that in the mail, send it to you if you're listening in North America. Next caller that we have is uh, Henry, listening in New York. Henry, welcome to the program.
3: Yes, good evening. Uh, my question is, um, back in the biblical days, uh, Mary and Joseph, uh, is there any people living today uh, who uh, are, they, uh, are, they, are they related to?:
1: Well, I'm sure there are people that are related. It tells us both Mary and Joseph descended from the tribe of David, a tribe of Judah, which is where David was from, and David specifically, and very likely, because you look at the the kings. Solomon, who was a descendant of David, had hundreds of wives and concubines. Uh, so I, I think that their DNA of uh, David, uh, which you know, ended up in Joseph and Mary, uh, is in the world today. Now, of course, Jesus had no children. So if you're gonna say, is there any physical DNA that uh, you know, Mary passed on? No, Joseph did have other children prior to marrying Mary. Uh, it talks about Jesus' brothers and sisters. It, they're technically half brothers and sisters. Um, but um, I guess you'd say step brothers and sisters. But um, no, there was uh, nobody came from Mary and Jesus.
2: Right, from that line it's done. Yeah. All right, next question that we have is Brandon listening from Kentucky. Brandon, welcome to the
1: program. No Hi, Pastor. Hi. Hi. Jeremiah 4.23, it says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. So my question is, uh, what is the condition of the earth at the end of the thousand years at the resurrection of the wicked? Yeah, well, you found it there. If you look in, that's one example in Jeremiah chapter 4. It tells us that, um, uh, and if you go to verse 23 by itself, uh, it makes it sound like, oh, this is talking about the second coming. But you keep reading, And it says, I beheld the mountains, says the 24, and they trembled, the hills moved lightly. Indeed, there was no man. The birds of heaven were fled. I beheld the fruitful place was a wilderness and all its cities were broken down. And then you say, at what? At the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. The coming of the Lord uh, devastates the planet. And it says the hills and the mountains melt before him as he comes. So the world stays in that condition but it's almost, it, you know, it goes into darkness during the 1,000 years, and Satan and his demons are chained down here.
2: So at the second coming, you have the righteous taken to heaven. You have the wicked, those who are alive, destroyed with the brightness of Christ's coming. Mm-hmm. The dead wicked, while well, they just remain in their graves. And you have the devil and his angels sort of bound to the earth, kind of in prison mm-hmm. here on the planet for 1,000 years. And then at the end of the 1,000 years, you read about the third coming, where the New Jerusalem descends in Revelation chapter 21. And it's at that time that Jesus sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and it opens up and forms a great valley. You read about that from Mm Zechariah. And the New Jerusalem comes to rest, the wicked all resurrected for the final great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 and then final destruction comes upon the wicked. So those are sort of the sequence of events that we see laid out in Bible prophecy. We do have a study guide that talks about the thousand years. It's called A Thousand Years of Peace. And we'll be happy to send this to anyone who calls and asks. The number again is 800-835-6747. You can call and ask about A Thousand Years of Peace. It's talking about that chapter that we read in Revelation chapter 20. and You'll find that interesting. Thanks for your call, Brandon. We've got Andrew listening um in Wisconsin. Andrew, welcome to the program.
3: Hi, how are you doing? Really well. Uh Pastor uh, Doug, I have a question. Um out of the book of Acts, chapter twenty one, verses nineteen to twenty four, um, is the apost when the apostle Paul's coming into Jerusalem, he's confronted by James. Is Paul keeping the law of Moses in this particular verse when he's um, asked to uh, take a vow?
1: Well, yeah, there, there were laws that you find in the Old Testament where a person could take a vow. It tells us earlier that Paul shaved his head because he had taken a vow. He did that on his own. He wasn't required the first time. Just says that he had chosen, I read it today actually, that he had chosen to take a vow. And then now he comes to Jerusalem and uh, the accusation is going around among the Jews that Paul is teaching people to abandon the law. And they said, so that they won't think that. Why don't you go ahead and shave your head so they see that you're you're taking a vow? Um, Paul was not against doing that, but it was sort of he was sort of capitulating to the pressure from the Pharisee Christians. Believe it or not, they were Pharisees that had converted to Christ and they wanted, all the Gentile Christians to keep the laws. You find that in Acts chapter 15. So, um, Paul was trying to accommodate the apostles that were not wanting to uh, anger the, the Pharisee and the more uh, law-bound Jewish Christians.
2: But you know, we also find an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, this is the Apostle Paul. And he says, um, for though I am a free man and have made myself a servant to all, mm-hmm that I might win even more. And then he says, and to the Jew, I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. And he says, those who are under the law, meaning the law of Moses, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without the law, meaning the law of Moses, uh, he was as one without the law in order that he might win those who are the Gentiles. So as far as conscience would allow, and it was right for him to do, he tried to connect with the people that he was trying to reach. Mm -hmm. Now, by seeing Paul do that example, he followed certain customs that the Jews followed, but he didn't require the Gentiles to follow those same customs. For example, circumcision was very important to the Jews. Paul's very clear for Gentile believers, there's no need for circumcision.
1: Right, so hopefully that helps a little bit, uh, Andrew, and uh, thank you for your question.
2: All right, we've got Tom listening in Chicago. Tom, welcome to the program. Good evening, Pastor. Evening.
1: My question is on uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. If somebody asks, how can I explain that to I mean, others? All right, Matthew 10, verse 23. I'll go there real quick. And uh, let's see here. He says, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another, for surely I say to you, you will have not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Um, I think that he's saying, basically, that uh, there's going to be plenty of work to do uh, until Jesus comes. Indeed, Jesus says in Matthew 24, the gospel will be preached in all the world for a witness, and that would include the tribes of Israel, and then the Son of Man will come. It's interesting that today there are very few Christian churches in Israel. Even though you've got Christian pilgrims from around the world going there, most of the uh, Israelis do not believe in Christ.
2: You know, it's also interesting here that when Jesus is referring to the f- to the phrase of um, Israel, uh, it's true that there are still many, many Jews that have not yet received the message or received Christ as their personal Savior. But in the New Testament, Israel is also used for those who profess faith in Christ. You've got spiritual Israel. right? And even amongst those who claim to be Christians, there are those who have not really come to a full understanding of what what the truth is, what the gospel is. So there's a mission field, not only to those who have never heard the gospel, but also there's also a mission field to those who have the word of God, who have heard the gospel, but they have not heard it correctly. Mm-hmm. They haven't received the full gospel, just like the Jews. They had the Bible, but they didn't understand the truth of the Messiah of Christ. So it's a broad application, not only to literal Jews, but I think to even spiritual Jews or Christians, there is still a work of evangelism right. that needs that to take place, even amongst those.
1: And we've actually got a little book we can offer called Spiritual Israel that explains that Israel includes more than just literal Jews. Mm-hmm.
2: The number to call for that is 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book. It's called Spiritual Israel. and We'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. All right, next caller that we have, uh, we've got Darla listening from Idaho. Darla, welcome to the program.
3: Hello, Pastor. Thank you so much for taking my call. Uh-huh. Uh, my question is, If I can explain it right, Um, I'm just wondering about Jesus's clothes. Okay, so um, I'm wondering if um, his clothing was changed to seamless when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration,
0: or has he always had seamless clothes?
1: Yeah, because it's saying that at the cross, when they gambled for his clothing, they didn't want to tear his cloak because it was without seam. Is that what you're talking about?
3: Yes, yes.
1: Yeah, you know, there's no statement in, well, it does say that when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, his clothing was glowing brighter than the sun at noonday and brighter than any soap could get it. But I, I don't think there's any comment in there that something happened where that suddenly his clothes at that point became seamless. It's an interesting thought. I'd never thought of before, but I don't think anything in the scripture says that.
2: I think it has more to do with the style of of the clothing or or the robe that Christ had. Um, It was more expensive to weave a a robe without a lot of seams. Now maybe there was probably one seam, but in compared to what was more common amongst the people, it was a more expensive type of weaving, more expensive type of robe, more valuable. That's why the Roman soldiers didn't want to tear it apart. Mm Um, so I think that's more of what it's referring to. It was a, uh, somebody had given him a a beautiful, uh, robe that Christ wore. Mm All right. Well, thank you. Appreciate your question. Do we have time for one more? Let's try. Okay. We've got Austin listening in Texas. Austin, welcome to the program.
0: Uh, thank you, pastors. Uh, first off, I just want to say thank you for everything y'all are doing, just leading us to Christ. Um, I got a, I kind of got a far-out-there question, though, so um hope this doesn't put you in a tailspin there, Pastor Doug. All right. Um, <laughs> the, the theory that the world is flat with the dome or the firmament above it supported by pillars, they also say that the stars reside in the dome. They use verses like in Genesis, Job, and Psalm, and Chronicles, and Samuel throughout the Bible, kind of supporting this flat-earth theory. I just kind of wanted to get your two cents on it.
1: All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's my answer is probably worth about two cents. Uh, but it's, it's really simple for me. The world is round. Uh, you know, we started with an amazing fact about a teenager who just became the uh, the youngest person to fly a plane solo around the world. Uh, my friends that uh, believe that the earth is flat, um, they must also think that all the pilots in the world are conspiring together with this great secret. And I'm a pilot, and I can tell you that the world is round. Uh, Pastor Ross has been on airplanes around the world probably several times, huh? Mm-hmm. And yeah, <laughs> yeah you, so they're taking, meta, they're taking allegorical verses in the Bible where Job and others will talk about the earth being on the pillars of the earth or something.
2: Well, Job actually says the, the circle of the world. God yeah. sits over the circle. Yeah. So there are verses in the Bible that describe the earth as being round.
1: Yeah, and spherical, yeah. too. So, hey, friends, don't go very far. This popular program is actually on so many stations, we've got to sign off in stages. So, goodbye to our satellite friends. We'll be back with questions for the others in just a moment.
0: Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. Did you know that Noah was present at the birth of Abraham? Okay, maybe he wasn't in the room, but he was alive and probably telling stories about his floating zoo. From the creation of the world to the last day events of Revelation, BibleHistory.com is a free resource where you can explore major Bible events and characters. Enhance your knowledge of the Bible and draw closer to God's Word. Go deeper. Visit the Amazing Bible Timeline at BibleHistory.com
2: Welcome back, friends. For those who are able to stay by, we've got about two minutes and we're going to be taking some of your internet questions that you sent in. So if you have a Bible question, you'd like to email it to us. The email address is balquestions at amazingfacts.org. So Pastor Doug, the first question that we have is from someone in the UK. And Johan is asking in Acts chapter 16, 16 verse 18, There is a story of a demon-possessed person that was exalting god and proclaiming that the disciples had a message of salvation why did paul want to quiet her and why was the demon saying these things
1: yeah not just this case where you've got a demon-possessed girl that was uh, highlighting that uh, paul and silas were servants of the most high god but when Jesus first started his ministry, he was in a synagogue and some demon-possessed man stood up and said, Jesus, son of God, we know who you are. And I think uh, several occasions the demons would speak out and it says they would name him. Yeah, the, you know, the devil, what makes him so deceptive is that um, he will sometimes support the truth in what he's declaring. But then he ends up getting people's attention because of a supernatural power and then he twists and distorts things. So the devil will blatantly lie. The devil will sometimes act like he's supporting the truth. Don't forget even Balaam the prophet gave some true prophecies and ended up betraying the people of God. So sometimes they'll win confidence that way. Sure, what she said was true, but Paul did not want the advertisement of the devil.
2: Okay, another question that we have, this one is when people go to church and they start going into, and he, he calls it, a fit and a collapse in church. And they say this is from God. His question is, is this from God, or is this a manifestation of another spirit?
1: Well, I, I've got to be careful not to make a sweeping statement that says in every case when a person is slain in the spirit, as they say, I used to go to Pentecostal churches, um, sometimes you wonder what spirit, because in a lot of demonic uh, services, people can be slain in the spirit where they lose all control. But there is also an example in the Bible where the spirit of the Lord came on Saul and he fell down, prophesied, took off all his clothes and he seemed totally out of it. Uh, so, you know, there may be cases uh, in the Methodist revival, there were some people that just seemed to be uh, swoon under the power of the spirit. But that's different than people writhing and, and, and you know convulsing like snakes on the ground. Mm-hmm. And anyway. Hey friends, hopefully that was helpful. Thank you so much. God willing, we'll be coming back again in a week to study the Word of God with you.
0: Bible Answers Live, honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.